Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today is officially our last episode of On Air before we transition to live from Pemberley and get to talk about Pride and Prejudice. And we figured the best way to end On Air would be to talk to Juliet Barker. Juliet Barker is a British historian with her PhD from Oxford University and was the curator of the Bronte Parsonage Museum at Haworth for six years. Most importantly to me, she's the writer of one of the definitive biographies of the Brontes, called The Brontes, Wild Genius on the Moors. We've spent the last several episodes on adaptations of Jane Eyre, demonstrating how this story has stayed relevant to us almost 200 years after its publication. But we thought the right place to end would be with Charlotte Bronte herself. How she grew up, what her family was like, which we all know was seminal to the book that she ended up giving us. So here is an interview with one of the experts on the Brontes, Juliet Barker, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is our final episode of Season 3 of Hot and Bothered on Air. Hi, Juliet. Thank you so much for joining us. It is an actual honor. I can't even tell you how big of a fan I am. Oh, bless you. Thank you. It's very kind of you to invite me. <laughs> so we have you here to just walk us through some of the points of Charlotte Bronte's life that we didn't have a chance to discuss on the podcast. And a big thing that we didn't discuss was her childhood. We talked about the loss in her childhood, but we didn't talk sort of about the joy in her childhood. And I was wondering if you could tell us about, I know that she built sort of worlds with her sisters and brother, and I would just love to hear your depiction of her childhood. I think it's very easy to always think of Charlotte Bronte as having this miserable childhood. And that's in a way how she's always been depicted from Mrs. Gaskell's life of Charlotte Bronte onwards. The fact that they lost their mother so young, the fact that the two older sisters died aged 11 and 10, it all seems to be a crushing sense of doom and gloom that surrounds the family. But when you read the things that they were actually writing at the time, you get such a different impression of what their childhood was like. And what we tend to forget, these were Four, the four surviving children, Charlotte, her brother Bramwell, Emily and Anne, 
were very close in age, but even closer in sympathies and in interests. And they created a world for themselves that they lived in, breathed in and wrote about. And so from a very, very young age, they were already inventing stories about their imaginary characters. We know, for instance, that Patrick Bronte said that his children identified very strongly with Wellington and Napoleon. Charlotte was all for Wellington. <laughs> Bramwell was always for Napoleon. And he'd say he was in his study and the noise levels would just shoot through the roof and he'd be in despair. And so he'd go charging through to find out what was wrong. And basically they were having a massive argument to see who was the best. And he would be called <laughs> upon to judge between them. And I think that, again, it tells you so much about Patrick Bronte as well. The fact that he's interested in his children, which is something that you just don't get at all from any of the normal sources. The fact that they respected his judgment um, and that they were happy to call him in as an arbiter for their games. I think that's really important too. But the fact that the passion with which they get involved in these stories that they're creating, it just shows you how closely involved they are as small children. They're almost a unit. Um, it's them against the world, as it were. And I think it's really important that we do see that side of their childhood. Yeah. And it's not until about a bit later on that they start to write these stories down. And then we find a totally new, I think, avenue to imagine what it was must have been like for them as young Brontes in that parsonage in Haworth. And for me, what's fascinating is that we always tend to think of Charlotte as being the leader. And we know she was very bossy in her treatment of her siblings, <laughs> always, even into adulthood. Emily and Anne complained about how bossy she was. But <laughs> in the beginning, it's always Branwell. Branwell is the leader and the innovator in all their childhood games and in their stories. And he's the one who experiments with writing different forms of stories. So he writes poems, he writes plays, he writes stories, he writes mm. magazines, Black Bramwell's Blackwoods magazine. And those things were crucial to the development of their children as co-authors, but also to their whole imaginary world and their sense of belonging together. And I think that we overlook that aspect of their lives at our peril. Can you talk just a little bit about Charlotte's relationship with Branwell? I feel like, you know, we think of the three sisters on the moors, but Branwell, I think, is less well known as part of her life. And I know that they were very close. Branwell's absolutely critical to the development of the three girls as characters themselves, but also, I think, more importantly, as, as writers too, because he is this innovator. He is always experimenting with different ideas. And they really admired his fantastic abilities in so many different fields. I mean, the thing about the Bronte sisters is that they're only good at one thing, which is writing fiction. Bramwell was talented in so many different ways. He was a talented classicist. He was a moderately talented portrait painter too. And he had so many different ways that he could have taken his career. And in a sense, he had too many options. And that's why he sort of 
sparkled and, and burnt out. But we should never forget that Bramwell was the first member of the siblings to be in print. His poems were being published in local newspapers in the very early 1840s and were highly regarded by many professional poets. He was also the one who came up with the idea of writing novels, just as he'd always done with the children. Where he'd said, let's write a play or let's write a magazine. He was the one who thought that being the author of a novel, that that was a good way for them to be able to earn a living because they could all stay at home. And that's what they all wanted. All four of them wanted to stay at home. Bramwell had ambitions to go to the Royal Academy. You would have expected someone of Bramwell's talents to have gone to university, but there was no way that his father could have afforded to send him to university. So the only way for him to do that was to become a clergyman and be sponsored by the church. And Bramwell said, there's no way I'm going to be a hypocrite. I am not going to do that. And you have to admire him for that. But it did mean that he would always have to earn his own living, just like his sisters, who also had to earn their own livings because their father had no money to leave them at all. I think, again, we tend to forget just how critical it was to all of them that they had skills and an education that fitted them for earning a living. And of course, that was one of the reasons why Patrick sent his daughters to the clergy daughters' school. He had no idea what a traumatic effect that was going to have on his children. It was a, a brand new school. He knew the master in charge of it, Reverend William Carus Wilson. People like William Wilberforce, the great anti-slavery campaigner, was a great supporter of the school and of William Carus Wilson. Mm. Lots of Patrick's clergy friends were also sending their children there too. So for the girls to go there would have been an obvious thing for him to do because it was really important that they were all educated to a standard where they could earn their own living. And that's what the clergy daughter's school equipped the daughters of poor clergymen to do, to go out into the world as governesses, and I think it's really interesting, actually, that Patrick paid the extra sum for Mariah, the eldest daughter, but also for Charlotte and Emily to be uh, educated as governesses, to be given the extra subjects that they would be, could be taught. But Elizabeth, who was the second daughter who died aged 10, clearly wasn't as bright as her siblings. And he just paid for an ordinary education for her. <laughs> So I've always thought that was a bit unfair, really. But um, he obviously, you know, had to weigh up how he could do this, how he could educate all these children. And the, the big thing about the clergy daughter's school was that he could educate four daughters for the price of two at a normal school. So he has been much criticised for sending his daughters to the clergy daughter's school, not least because of the harrowing depiction of it by Charlotte in Jane Eyre. But he had good reasons and no reason to know that things were going to be as bad as they were when they went there. So why did Branwell sort of fail where his sisters succeeded, right? We, we know the sisters and we know what they published and yet he's sort of been left to obscurity. What happened to him? I think Bramwell's main problem was that he had too many talents and he didn't 
He couldn't concentrate on one thing. If he decided that he was going to be a portrait painter and just stuck to that, maybe he would have succeeded. But he always, always, always had literary ambitions. And he was, like Charlotte did, was sending his poetry and his work out to all the great authors of the day, to William Wordsworth, to Robert Salvey, the poet laureate. And a lot of, not all of them, but some of them wrote back in very encouraging terms to him. So he always had this prospect of literary fame, which mattered to him more than anything else, dangled before him. And I think it distracted him from the mundane business of earning your own living. And I think that's probably as much as a, a reason why. I also think that that's a reason for his complete downfall in the end, which is when he went as a tutor to the Robinson family at Thorpe Green. And poor Bramwell came along and promptly fell in love with Mrs. Robinson, which was not judicious to say, <laughs> put it mildly. But she clearly led him on and she did have a reputation as well. It must have been exciting for this middle-aged woman having this young poet who <laughs> was writing poems and publishing them in the local newspapers addressed to her in Greek, but addressed to her. Uh, it must have been exciting for her. And it was only when it all got out of hand and Mr. Robinson clearly discovered the affair that Bramwell was dismissed. And for Bramwell, really, that was the final straw. He tried so many different careers, but all the time writing and publishing because that was just a way to keep financing his, his great desire to be a poet. And so he, at that stage, he just, he just gave up completely and he took to drink. And it's, it's interesting, too, when you look at his writings, he's rewriting the poems he'd written in youth. He's not producing anything new anymore. So I think that also tells you something about how his talents had, had basically dried up. And it was a pitiful thing to see. Yeah, it's tragic. I would love to hear a little bit about Charlotte's life after Jane Eyre. So we know it was this smashing success. Did she go on a shopping spree? What? How was her life changed by the success of Jane Eyre? Her life didn't change immediately with the success of Jane Eyre because, of course, Emily and Anne had both insisted that they should maintain their privacy. And Jane Eyre was published under the name Curra Bell. So nobody knew whether it was even a man or a woman who'd written the book. And Emily in particular was adamant that there had to be no way that anybody could find out that they were publishing novels. I think Charlotte would have quite liked <laughs> to have, have uh, enjoyed that success straight away. In fact, when Charlotte and Anne went down to London to prove to George Smith, Charlotte's publisher, that they were not one person using several different pseudonyms, they were actually different people, Charlotte quite enjoyed the fact that this handsome young publisher immediately swept her off her feet and took poor Charlotte and Anne off to see to the opera house. They were wearing their country clothes and there they are in the finest opera house, surrounded by all the grandees of society. So it was exciting, but it was also quite embarrassing. And for me, I think the saving grace for Charlotte, really, after the death of Bramwell and then of Emily and Anne in swift succession in nine months, September 1848 through to May 49, 
the saving grace was that then she could pick up her career as a public figure, as an, or an acknowledged authoress. And she could go to London and she could meet people like William Mapius Thackeray, whom she'd worshipped since childhood. And she could do all the things she wanted to do. And she sometimes surprised George Smith and his family by saying she wanted to go to Bethlehem Hospital, an asylum for the insane, as it was then known. She wanted to go and see some of the prisons. And he thought her tastes were very odd. But on the other hand, he was he was a charming chap who escorted her around London. He paid for her to have her portrait done by the great society painter George Richmond and sent her it as a gift, which was wonderful. And then he even took her on a tour of Scotland, which to her, I mean, it was quite shocking. Ellen Nussie, Charlotte's straight-laced friend, was deeply shocked that Charlotte went off with George and George's sister as chaperone. But for for Charlotte, it was going to Edinburgh. It was going and seeing Walter Scott's house, all the things that she'd been writing about and loving since childhood. And it gave her a reason to keep going after the loss of her sisters. And I think that was so important to her. Why did she want to go to asylums and prisons? What was that about? You'd have to ask her. I don't know. I mean, was it what? What is your best guess? Is was it research for books? Was it compassion? Was it guilt about Bertha and the way that she had depicted her? I don't think it's that. I don't. We tend to forget how insanity was commonplace in Victorian times. Wordsworth's family had several extended family members who were put in asylums. Ellen Nussie's brother was in an asylum at the time that Charlotte was writing Jane Eyre. So she knew about these places and she knew how badly treated people were in them. But I think it's such a gothic creation is is Bertha. I don't think you can argue that it was a realistic depiction at all. I think she just had this burning curiosity to see these places. And she also had a rather odd instinct that told her that she really ought to be writing novels that were based on real life. Some of the critics had had been very rude about her style of writing, her fiction that was, it was all so gothic and, and unrealistic. And so when she wrote her second novel, Shirley, she did try very hard to make it more realistic. She actually sat down and and went through the local newspapers and did research on what it was like during the Luddite rebellions. And I think that's it's a poorer novel because of that, to be honest, Um, (laughs) because she she got dragged down by her research. And so she didn't she didn't let her imagination go free. And it was when she returned to her own personal experience and, and her imaginative experience that she again came back to write Villette, which it's an extraordinary book, I think, one of her most powerful books. Um, it's not much read these days and certainly not as it's not doesn't sweep you away in the same way that Jane Eyre does. But it is probably her best written book in terms of, of the, the way it's written. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So just tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about Charlotte at the end of her life. I know she gets married, but how did that come about? And she was old for getting married at the time. God forbid, I think she was in her 30s. So I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about that time after her her siblings have, have all died. I think it's quite a poignant story, actually, about Charlotte's later life, because it's not just the fact that she lost all her siblings, but she was clearly a very lonely woman. It's not just that she'd lost dearly loved members of the family, but she'd she'd lost her powerhouse, her machinery that surrounded her and grounded her as a writer. So she'd lost out on, on several really important levels. And there really wasn't anything else that could make up for that. We know that she'd had several proposals of marriage before. Ellen Nussie's brother, who um, very much seems to be uh, along the lines of um, St. John Rivers, had proposed marriage to her and she'd rejected it. A different one than was in the asylum, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. She had, Ellen had loads of brothers. But Henry (laughs) Nussie had proposed marriage to her and he was a vicar. And also James Taylor, who was a publisher, belonged to the publishing firm, and he was the one who proposed marriage to her, and he was going out to India. And Mm. Charlotte couldn't get over her physical dislike of him, and so she, again, turned him down. Well, there was was another, there was an Irish curate who came and sat and talked one evening with her, and he was completely bowled over by her, and she had to slap him down as well. So, but she gets to the, her late thirties, and she she has no prospect. I mean, just re- picture for yourself: she's she's lost all her siblings. She's only got her elderly father, who was already an elderly father when they were small children, and she has the prospect that when he dies, she has to leave that house, and she has nobody. There is nobody left to look after her, or for her to look after either. And I think she was deeply troubled by this sense of loneliness and and despair, really. She very much liked George Smith, her her very young publisher, and they shared a very flirtatious correspondence uh, for quite a long time. And I think Charlotte half hoped (laughs) that maybe he might propose to her, but I mean... That the, there was no way he was going to do that. And he did what was expected of him and married a very wealthy, very beautiful young woman. And she wrote the best letter of congratulation ever written 
Can I, can I look it up and just give you it? Because it's one line. Please. My dear sir, in great happiness, as in great grief, words of sympathy should be few. Accept my meed of congratulation and believe me sincerely, your C. Bronte. And that's it. <laughs> And this is a woman, don't forget, who'd been writing, who'd, who'd been writing to him as Curabelle, <laughs> because Curabelle gave her the license to address him as a much more of an equal, because Curabelle could be taken to be a man. So she suddenly reverts to see Bronte and goes all prim and proper on him. So she, <laughs> he's getting married. So she knows that that that's scotched that one, and then. There's poor old Arthur Bell Nichols, who'd no, he'd been there for, is it seven years that he'd been at the parsonage already uh, as the curate for her father? He knew her sisters. He knew all the family. So in a sense, he wasn't, he wasn't a stranger in a way that somebody like any of the publishers would have been. And basically, one, one day, he, he, she, he came and knocked on the door. And she said she realised with a sense of dread exactly what was going to come in, happen. And he came in and proposed marriage to her. And it came as right out of the blue to her. And Patrick was furious. He wanted his daughter to marry one of the publishers in London and have a grand life and, and be settled and wealthy, you know. And, and Arthur Bell Nichols had nothing to offer. He was a curate, a humble curate from Ireland. And so Patrick was virulently opposed and as is the way often when your parents are virulently opposed to something, you go the other way. And she gradually, over the, the next few months, she came round and realised that he wasn't wanting to marry her for her money. He wasn't wanting to marry her because she was a famous author. He actually loved her passionately. And she'd never really taken the time or trouble to realise that he had this, this deep depth of passion in his nature because she'd always just seen him as the curate, you know. And um, there we go. So she 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 eventually realised, and basically, she I think she just thought this is my last chance of happiness. So she's thirty seven, thirty eight, something like that, when she decides to get married, and it was it it, it was a difficult decision for her. Her great friend Ellen Nussey was appalled and said she ought to endure to the end as a virgin <laughs> author. Uh, but Charlotte herself wanted happiness. She wanted to be loved. And Arthur was a, a devoted husband to her and was also devoted to Patrick. I mean, despite the way Patrick had reacted, Arthur Bell stayed on at the parsonage and looked after him, came to live at the parsonage, kept Patrick there and was a tremendous support to Patrick in the parish. And Charlotte found herself, much to her surprise, actually falling in love with her husband. And it wasn't, it wasn't a great sweep of emotion or, you know, one of these blinding flashes like you get in Jane Eyre. It was a, a steady relationship that grew and when when she died, it's the, one of the most poignant things I think are the little letters that she wrote to her her last letters, and she wrote them in pencil to her friends and saying, "I want to assure you that my husband has been the most devoted, the best nurse I could ever have had," and she wanted her friends to know how good he had been, and he was a good man. Uh, he just wasn't famous or rich. <laughs> 
but there you go. She got happiness, but sadly it was snatched from her at the end. And of course, the reason that she died was that she got pregnant at 38 years of age. And this was, again, one of the reasons why Patrick had opposed the marriage, because he'd buried so many women who died in childbirth in later life. And so it was awful. But if if she'd been living today, she would have survived. They would have just taken her into hospital. They would have given her, rehydrated her and given her some antibiotics and she would have survived. But then there was nothing else. There was nothing anybody could do to save her. And both Patrick and Arthur Bell were distraught when she died. How long were they able to be married and happy before she passed away? Um, They got married in the June of 54 and she died in the March, end of March, 55. So it was a very short time. But that's why it's so nice to read these letters where before her marriage, she's talking in terms of how nervous she is. She's worried about giving up her independence because she'll have to be uh, obey her husband. But then you see this gradual change in her letters where she talks about Arthur's asked me to do this and he's asked me to do that. And, oh, my husband's calling me. I need to just go and do this. And and she obviously loved that role and the sense that she was needed. And, and so people say, oh, you know, well, she got married and, and that was the end of her literary career. I don't think it was. She showed Arthur some scripts that she'd started to write, some beginnings of some novels. And it was all about a child who was being badly treated and he said, well, you've, you've done that before. And so everybody said, oh, he <laughs> killed her literary career. But I, I, I think that's a wrong interpretation of, of how it was. And he was supportive of her and, you know, would have supported her literary career. But what most people forget again is that Charlotte had a three-book deal with, with George Smith. So it was Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. it was Shirley, and then it was Villette. And after she'd finished Villette then she, she'd completed her obligation to her publishers. And I think that in itself was also drawing a line, if you, see, if you see what I mean, that it made it more difficult for her to start afresh. She could have started with a different publisher altogether. I don't think she would have, but it would have been more difficult given what had happened between her and George Smith himself. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get out of that letter she wrote. Um, But can you still please publish my next novel? Thanks. Um, I don't really have a question. Just, I mean, Patrick Bronte buried his wife and outlived all of his children. I just can't imagine the despair of that. I guess my question is, did he end up living in the parsonage until he passed away? Patrick stayed on and lived at the parsonage and uh, literally until he died. He died in the parsonage. And he died in 1861, so that's five years, six years after. So that's a long time to live, outlive your last surviving child. And again, I think this is one of the wonderful and inspirational things about Patrick Bronte that we tend to forget, was that he had this incredible faith. And that's what kept him going. He wrote to old friends. He says in his letters, I've had all these wonderful children I'm so proud of what they've achieved and what they've done. He sent copies of Charlotte's books to his extended family back in in Ireland. He was extraordinarily proud of it, her and her siblings. 
one of the things that kept both him and Arthur Bell Nichols amused was the number of visitors who came to Haworth, even at this early time, you know, mm. 1855 onwards, and particularly after 1857 when Mrs. Gaskell published her life of Charlotte Bronte. And then at that yeah. point, Charlotte's life was, you know, public and people wanted to come to Haworth and see it and to see this place. And Patrick and Arthur Bell used to sort of had to entertain all these wretched people who came and knocked on the door and said, can we see Charlotte? Can we have a bit of her writing? You know, it amused them. But obviously also it was it was a deeply upsetting thing for them too. But um, both of them were very proud of her. I've heard that the Americans were particularly obnoxious. Well, not just not, not just Americans. I mean, people come from all over the world. And I think that's one of the fascinating things is, is how this extraordinary family and the fact that they're a family of writers and, and they're, they're living in what is effectively a remote place. They're not in London, which is where most authors were living. They're living in this secluded area. And yet people from all over the world identify with them and with particular with Charlotte Bronte and it's that's because of Jane Eyre because we can all identify with this child who's been maltreated and feels neglected and unloved and I think um, it speaks to people regardless of nationality or even of, of politics or anything else at all. I remember when I was at the Parsonage working at the Parsonage we had a lady came who her family had uh, evacuated from Korea and they'd had to take one suitcase of things with them and they took a copy of Jane Eyre with them. Now, what does that tell you? Something that, yeah, really moved me when I was at the Parsonage was the idea that Virginia Woolf had gone and paid tribute and that Sylvia Plath, right, imagining sort of all the pilgrims who had come before me, not just Charlotte, I found deeply moving. Is there anything else that you feel like I didn't ask you or that you just want to share about Charlotte's life or any of the Brontes? I think the other critical period of, of Charlotte's life is when she goes to Brussels. Yes. And she goes as a 26-year-old and is, becomes a schoolgirl again in the, the Pensionnat Asie and is really excited to be learning and learning French and it's opening up a whole new intellectual world for her. But the most exciting thing of all was that she fell in love with Monsieur Ege, the married <laughs> uh, director of the school. And I think one of the reasons why she fell in love with him was that he was the first person outside the immediate family who'd ever really appreciated her literary talents, her intellect. And that had all been swept under the carpet, you know, as a governess or as a teacher. There's no way that anybody would have appreciated those sorts of, of talents amongst her. But what's really important about the Brussels period, and, and Charlotte, unlike Bramwell, had the moral courage to go away again, go back home, because she realised that nothing was going to come of a, having an affair with a married man, though he probably wasn't interested himself. The most important thing is that he affects her whole idea of what the romantic hero is going to be because from childhood they'd always been these swaggering, very masculine, handsome, haughty individuals and that had all these women falling on their feet, you know. But then with Monsieur Ege, she also appreciated his abilities, his wit, 
But also, he was a very small man. He smoked a cigar. He was extremely ugly. He used to lose his temper. She said he looked like a hyena sometimes when he was in one of his rages. And I think some of those characteristics are transposed to Mr. Rochester. She realizes that you can have a hero who isn't tall and handsome and suave and sophisticated and aristocratic. You can actually have a hero just as you can have a heroine who is an ordinary person. Whenever I read that bit in Jane Eyre about where she smells his cigar as he goes past the window, and I always think, well, that that is just Monsieur Eger, because she could tell when he'd been in her desk and looked at her things because the smell of the cigar lingered on in the desk. <laughs> so out of these things, these small things, great novels are built. Well, thank you so much for your time and your scholarship and just all of your wonderful work. It was an absolute honor to be able to talk to you. No, it's been fun. Thank you. I like, as you can probably tell, I like to go on about Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) This was our last episode of On Air. Next week, we're releasing a trailer for Live from Pemberley, which is launching March 25th. So mark your calendars with a big heart around that date. If you'd like to support us in making this new season, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. We want to give a special shout out to the very special people who are supporting us in our Jane Bennett tier. Elise Kanagaratnam, Gretchen Snegas, Molly Real, Kristen Hall, Leah Baxley, Two Cats and a Book, Becky Boo and Biddy. We are Not Sorry Production. My co-host during the regular season is Lauren Sandler. Our executive producer is always the great and good Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thank you again to Juliet Barker for speaking to us for this episode. And thanks as always to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and each and every one of our patrons. 